Hey everybody, it's Chelsea. Thank you for joining me here on another episode of the Soul of Diabetes podcast. Today I've got a special episode. My guest is Dr. Arlene Tuckman. She is a professor of history at Vanderbilt University specializing in the cultural history of medicine. And her recent book titled Diabetes, A History of Race and Disease is a very compelling book. It's um, something that's really caught my attention. And I'd like to thank my friend, Dr. Felicia DeRose for introducing me to Dr. Tuckman and leading me to learn more about her book. To give you a guess, I guess an description of what the book is about, I guess I really just have to read you a description um, from the, I guess the notes about her book. And it goes like this, beginning in the late 19th century, Dr. Tuckman describes how at different times, Jews, middle-class whites, American Indians, African-Americans and Hispanic Americans have been labeled most at risk for developing diabetes and that such claims have reflected and perpetuated troubling assumptions about race, ethnicity, and class. And honestly, this book pretty much is the foundation of what I'm attempting to do here with the Soul of Diabetes podcast is to bring about more awareness of how diabetes affects people of color and how it affects the communities. And this, this book really in, enlightened me to a lot of things that I never knew that I don't think any, many of you even knew about how diabetes was diagnosed, uh, treated and how it affected how those treatments and diagnosis has affected all these different people of color and as well as different classes of people in this United States. And I felt it extremely necessary to bring more awareness about this book because I would like all of you to hopefully take a chance to, to borrow this book. Uh, you can borrow mine, uh, download it, definitely read this book. Um, this is a, a great interview. Uh, when I was going back, listening to my interview with her and just going over the information and the things that we talked about. Um, it made me really appreciate the work that she's done. And it, it took her a long time to write this book. You'll find out about that in the episode, uh, just how long it took. Um, so basically with, um, with that being said, I want you to definitely take a moment to learn about this book, about Dr. Tuckman and her work, because as of late, I've gotten a lot of negative feedback from folks who don't understand what this podcast is about. Um, me being accused of being racist or uh, separatist, things of that nature, all this kind of lunacy. All of this stuff you can see on the Soul of Diabetes podcast Facebook page if you ever look that up. And just Because I left the comments there because I wanted people to actually see exactly who my... Who I'm, basically who I'm fighting against. I'm fighting against ignorance. And the folks that have written all these idiotic things on the page, these are the, these are the people that I'm fighting, the ignorance. So definitely check that out on the Facebook page. And let's go ahead and take a minute to sit down and talk to uh, Dr. Tuckman. I hope you enjoy this interview. 
Thank you, Arlene, for joining me here on the Soul of Diabetes podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out to um, join me here today on a Saturday or a rainy Saturday in my area. Uh, so if anybody hears any thunder in the background, we're just having some really nice thunderstorms in the area. So um, thank you so much for taking your time out to be on your my podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, what I like to start off with as far as um, the conversation on the podcast is like, I usually ask, um, I guess, if, they, if they're living with diabetes, that they kind of give me an idea of their diagnosis story or uh, mm -hmm. when they were diagnosed, how what it felt like. But give me an idea. What is your connection to diabetes? Yeah, so, um, so I'm not living with diabetes. Um, my, my father was diagnosed with diabetes when he was uh, 63 and, um, and I was not living at home at the time. So um, uh, obviously they told me, my mom and dad told me that he had diabetes. Um, he was diagnosed with uh, type two which made a lot of sense at the time. He was a rather short, round man. Um, on a good day, he was about five foot three and weighed uh, maybe 150 pounds, which um, I can't calculate the BMI on the top, off the top of my head, but um, you know, that definitely put him in the overweight category. Um, and so the assumption was that he had type two and um, uh, his physician didn't catch that something was wrong. And my dad started losing a lot of weight, but it wasn't until my parents moved to Florida, they had been living in New York. It wasn't until they moved to Florida and he uh, went to see a new doctor that they realized that his body wasn't producing any insulin. Um, so, um, so once they figured out that my dad needed insulin, um, he um, got a different kind of care. And from the time of his diagnosis, when he was 63 until he passed away 30 years later, um, he injected insulin four times a day. Um, but I still was somewhat distanced from it um, until he um, moved to Nashville where I live in 2002. My, my mom had passed away um, uh, already in the late 1980s and he stayed down in Florida with his sisters, but um, he decided to uh, move to Nashville in 2002. Uh, I had a two-year-old. He wanted to be closer to me and to his grandson. And um, he didn't live with me, but I became his alarm clock. I would call him every morning to uh, make sure that he'd made it through the night. And if he didn't answer the phone, I went over to where he lived. And so that's how I started um, learning more about um, what it means to have someone in your family who was living with diabetes. So that's my connection. Right, okay, yeah. So that's, um, that's a, um, a connection to diabetes is oftentimes overlooked is the um, are people who happen to be possible caregivers are um, just having a family member that's that has diet that lives with diabetes and you just basically kind of a you're living within earshot of yeah. uh, of diabetes where you just learn about what you see them doing or what you see them going through so that's that's kind of a um uh the, the i guess you could say a, a condition of diabetes that's oftentimes overlooked are the, are the caregivers um yeah and if i may just say that um the the 
the thing that really surprised me, and, and I guess you just don't know it until you live with it, is what a strange disease it is where, like I'd been around my dad when his sugars were, would drop and I would watch him losing control of some of his um, facial expressions and gradually become incoherent. Right. And, um, and then if, if, he, if I was able to get him some glucose, he would just come out of it. And it's, um, so, you know, there's both the anxiety around um, when, when you watch the person you love going through these changes or the few times I found him and he was unconscious. Mm -hmm. um, but then this like instant miracle, the way you can, you know, if you're lucky, you can bring someone back around and right. um, it's, it's such a baffling disease. Yeah, uh, I, I can definitely attest to that. I mean, just learning um, when I was diagnosed the things that I, it's a, it's one, it's like a, it's a, it's a course. It's like a, like a, a class that you have to live with that you're constantly learning something. I, I mean, and it's just a little thing. Like when you, the feeling you get when you have a, a low blood sugar. Mm -hmm. When I was early diagnosed, I would um, feel the effects of it when I was like around say 85. Mm -hmm. But like, as I progressed and got older, living with the condition, I don't feel it until I'm around maybe in the 50s. Right. 80s, I'll feel just fine. But like, you know, 30 years ago when I was, 80s would have me sweating and shaking, but now it's just that, and that's like you said, it's just, it's, it's just an odd disease to where it changes with you. Right, right. You know, it's, you, you get older, uh, you think it's maybe just something that you're just getting old or whatever, but it's, but it also, it, it decides to change along the way as well. And it just, it's, I guess in a way it can be one of those things that makes it more stressful because you have to, you literally have to be aware Right. What your body is doing, I and mean, oftentimes what your mind is telling you, right. uh, to what your uh, what's going on with your body. Yeah, there was one time before my dad moved here. Um, he was just visiting, and um, we were at the Opryland Hotel, and um, it took me a long time to realize something was not right. And by the time we called the medics, um, and my dad was still conscious, and they gave him permission to test his blood sugar, um, his sugar was around. 30. And the medics looked at me and they said, it makes no sense that he is not unconscious. Um, so just, you know, exactly what you said, my dad had lost the ability by that point to recognize what, um, um, what was happening to him. Right. Yeah. And that, that's the, um, I guess, in a way, the beauty of the, the advancements in technology uh, mm -hmm. Because now we have CGMs that can alert us on our watches or our, uh, on our phones, uh, mm -hmm. whether audio, you know, audio alerts are just, you know, like on my watch, I'll, it'll just buzz me on my wrist or whatever to keep me aware. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, if you don't, and, and it comes down to the choice of whether you want that type of technology or would you rather have a service dog? Right. Um, I didn't know that my silly dogs could possibly be trained to be uh, a service dog. I mean, I, I, every time I look at my dog, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I know you better than you think, but I, it's like, I don't know if I'm gonna trust you with my life sort of thing. It's like, yeah, 
yeah. you know, the way he hogs the bed and keeps me from sleeping at night sometimes. So it's like, I don't know. I'll have to think that through before we move any further with that relationship. So, yeah. But yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. What is your, um, your professional background? Uh, so I, uh, I'm, I'm an historian of medicine. So my, my um, doctorate is in the history of science and medicine. It's, uh, it's not from a regular history department. Right. Um, so um, I studied biology in college, uh, thought I was pre-med, decided I didn't want to do that, and then went to graduate school uh, in the history of science and medicine at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and then um, I had the great fortune of living in Germany for about five years as I um, did the research for my dissertation and then moved um, to my first job, which is here at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I've been here since uh, 1986. And I uh, teach undergraduate students and graduate students um, the history of medicine. That's, that's my full-time job. So with that, with your background in um, medical history and your own personal connection to diabetes, was that what kind of led you to an interest in, I guess, partially in writing this book? Yeah. Um, so I, um, I had, I was wrapping up my last book and um, just leaving myself open to what I might work on next. And I was, um, because of all the teaching that I've done in the history of medicine, I was very interested in the uh, literature on the history of disease, which there are a lot of fantastic books about all sorts of diseases. Um, most of them tend to be histories of epidemics right. and infectious diseases, because there is something about the suddenness and um, the way in which there's so much um, intensity and fear. And um, it just as we're seeing with COVID, like all of the social problems and political problems and racial problems just are exposed during those moments. Right. And, um, and so I knew that I wanted to dive deeper into the um, history of disease literature. And it just all came together with my dad moving to Nashville. And, um, and then I just realized that there were far fewer books that looked at history of chronic diseases. Mm. And um, so that seemed like um, a, a really important niche to, um, to explore. Right. Um, and then as far as the history of diabetes was concerned, <clears throat> there was, was, were some really good books, but um, they tended to focus around um, the discovery of insulin and the miraculous changes that that brought about. So, um, yeah, so I, um, I just started looking into um, what I could about the, about the history of diabetes. And one of the first things that I came across was um, the fact that diabetes had been considered a Jewish disease in the early 20th century, the late 19th century. And so, you know, that was, first of all, that was this huge surprise because everything that I was reading in the early 2000s 
um, from uh, the National Institutes of Health or the Centers for Disease Control or the Mayo Clinic. I mean, anywhere you looked, the, um, uh, when, the, when there was discussion of what racial groups are most at risk of developing diabetes, no one was talking about Jews, right? They were talking about um, Native Americans, uh, African Americans, uh, Hispanics. And, um, and so that just really captured me. And since um, I am Jewish, so my dad is Jewish, there was just a way in which this, all of this was coming together into a, right. uh, a narrative for me. Yeah. So I was hooked. That, that, was, that, was, that was it. Yeah. Now, that's that seems to be a pretty intense on taking to try and research the history of a, a chronic illness like that. How long would it does it would it take to how long did it take to, to basically research this book? I mean, this is like I, we you and I were just chatting about like a documentary film or something. And it's like I know like documentary films can take like years when you, you think about it. It's like really years. And it's it only lasted like an hour. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, and it's like. But, but uh, when you read the book, it's, it's so much. How, do you, how long does it take? How do you research something like that? Well, everybody takes a different amount of time, right? It's like, it's like anything anybody does. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm a slow book producer. Um, I was at a party once and um, talking with the wife of a visiting scholar and her husband was very, very prolific. And when I mentioned to her, and this was actually talking about my last book, when I mentioned to her that it took me uh, 12 years to write that book from, the, from when I first became interested through the research until it came out, she said, why? And my husband said, you should have said to her, because I'm just not that smart. <laughs> but, um, but this book took me a little bit longer. And, um, and part of it is that I weave together a lot of different stories in this book. Right. Um, and, um, and, and I want to feel like I know what I'm talking about. Um, and then part of it is, um, you know, it's just life. I mean, that happens to all of us. And while I was writing this book, my dad came and I was a, a kind of caregiver for him. Um, I had young children um, and children sometimes have problems that require your, all the time you have that you're not um, spending on your career. Um, or your marriage. And, um, and so, yeah, uh, start to finish this took me about 14 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You got to love something to stay with it that long. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I mean, I've said the I've told people the same thing about a, a lot of um, things, even if it comes down to something as simple as, you know, stand up comedy, to get on stage and stand there and bear your soul to a bunch of strangers and much of what you do depends on much of you moving forward depends on how they react <laughs> to you bearing your soul. That's right. And because if they because if they don't like it, that's pretty much you're gonna move slower. Right. But if they like it, you know, that's how you move forward, move up and forward. Right. So it's uh 
Yeah, I um gotta love it. Gotta love it. Yeah. I mean, anything, especially anything like like this or anything creative, you have to love it. Right. Because yeah. there are gonna be some lean times, there's gonna be some difficult times. Right. Um, a lot of people like to take shortcuts. Um, yeah. but there's some things in life that just shortcuts will not work. If, right. you're going, if you're going to be effective. I got to tell you, when I started reading the book, because one thing that got me, um, obviously, was the title of the book, because I had never seen a book talking about that subject, as, talking about diabetes as it pertains to race. Yeah. And because I, I guess I was the same way when you think about um, diabetes and how it affects different cultures, obviously, African Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans are the ones that come into the discussion as far as like who it affects the most. But when I read your book, and I had never heard uh, diabetes even mentioned um, as, you know, as a connection to the Jewish community, right. never heard it. Right. And as I read further in the, in the book, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it just seems like as far as the, how diabetes affects Hispanic, Native Americans, uh, African Americans, that didn't really, it's almost like that was just overlooked. It was there all the time, but it was overlooked. And then it didn't really even become an issue or even thought about until decades right. later. Right, and so, you know, that is one of the things one of the things about these narratives that we tell, right? One of the one of the things about these stories that we tell about who is at risk and and then and then why. Like so if we start linking it with certain personality traits or certain behaviors, then it can render the disease invisible. Right. In communities. And that's why it was really important to me to I mean, I'm jumping ahead now to the end of my book, and we haven't really talked about the middle, but why it was so important to me to point out how, um, how diabetes was rendered invisible in poor white communities in Appalachia for so long, because really, I mean, it, it, from the 1980s on, it was a disease of people of color. And and, and in some ways that brought the necessary visibility, although the stories that were being told about why were putting the blame on the bodies of those who were sick. And so that's the negative side of um, paying attention to the problem in, in, in certain communities. But, it, but when we have these stories, then then communities that are suffering are often rendered invisible. So really there, you know, there are two battles. One is to become visible. And then the second battle is how do we explain why the rates are so high? Right, right. And, and that's, um, and then it's a, there was this, this underlying of classism that, I mean, at one point when I was listening to the the chapter about African Americans, I, I, my twisted sense of humor just had to laugh when when he said the part about um, that African Americans were immune to it because African Americans were just they had no reason to have any stress. That they were too 
uh, they were happy go lucky. There was like, I was like, huh? <laughs> what? Um, yeah. Something about yeah. Jim Crow South seemed very stressful to me, you know? Right, and, right. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I don't want to get too wonky, but, right. um, but there, there has, there is this thread of linking diabetes with, um, with a refined nervous right. system. Right, right. And one of the really big surprises for me, so, so in the first half of the century when diabetes was considered to be a Jewish disease and a disease of middle-class whites, it was seen as a disease of individuals or of races that had a more developed nervous system and having a more developed nervous system, right? This is, this is an example of scientific racism. Right. Um, was mostly good, right? It's what made that race more intelligent. It's what made them more refined. It's what made them more civilized, but it also made them more susceptible to diseases of the nervous system. Right. And, um, and that that explanation disappeared in the second half of the century when diabetes was discovered among Native Americans and among African Americans. But the big surprise to me was this report, this, this, this um, government report, this congressional um, report that came out in the mid 1980s from um, the uh, Health and Human Services that brought attention to how serious a problem diabetes was among populations of color. Mm -hmm. And they looked at African-Americans, they looked at Native Americans, they looked at Mexican-Americans largely, they called it Hispanic, but it was mostly Mexican-Americans. And they looked at Asian-Americans, which was primarily Japanese. And and when they went to explain why the rates were high, the only group, this is in the 1980s, the only group that they um, said had high rates because of stress were the Japanese Americans. And they linked that to having been in um, internment camps. But stress was not a, um, an, an, an explanation for any of the other groups. Now they were not doing their own research, right? This was a literature review, but what it's also telling us is for the previous 20 to 30 years, all the people who went to study diabetes rates in these communities just didn't even bring in that possibility right. for any of the other groups. So it's, I mean, that's like racism, just like right in front of you. Right, right. And that's, that's the thing that um, is, 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 is mind boggling, honestly, as I was telling a, um, another advocate of mine when I, I spoke to her about uh, our interview today, and I was telling her about what I was reading in the book, it doesn't, I guess, coming from my perspective as an African-American and growing up, understanding what it was like to live my great grandparents and grandparents that live here in the South, um, their stories and my parents telling me about what they experienced. These types of things don't surprise me because that's mm -hmm. always been the, the history. But 
what got me though was I had to compare it to layers upon layers. You, it's like racism has so many different layers in this country that, mm -hmm. and right now we're having a, we're having more and more discussions about racial disparities as it pertains to healthcare in this country. Right. And this history is one of those layers that right. so often gets overlooked. If you peel back that layer, you'll see that classism, racism, it's in healthcare. Right. It's deeply entrenched in healthcare, but no one has really ever thought about addressing it. And so now when, when we had incidents such as George Floyd's and Breonna Taylor's murder last year, then you have these health organizations and health groups uh, reaching out to advocates of color to get our, to showcase our voices. Right. When, so after so many years, we've just basically been not talked to or even added to the discussion. It gets, oftentimes I had to like take the attention as, okay, and what is this all about now? And why I'm apprehensive about it because I don't know what it is they want to know because this is the same thing we've been talking about for years. So it took another person's murder for you to actually right. want to address how this affects people of color as it pertains to healthcare. Right. And sure. that's that's why I'm 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 so thankful for you for being on this podcast because I believe so much in this book in the information that it has to present because it and to me it doesn't matter whether it's, you're a diabetes advocate or you're an AIDS advocate or if or whatever this is a perfect example of how this information needs to be presented to get the folks that have been basically walking around with their fingers in their ears or their hands over their eyes, right. addressing race as it pertains to healthcare in this country. And it just, it just trickles down. I mean, we're talking about diabetes, but now let's, we can bring it full circle into people of color receiving the COVID vaccine. Right. Why, are they, why are they so, why they don't trust it? Right. I mean, I'm, I was born in the, in the late, in the mid sixties. I'm 56 now. Um, I can understand an African-American senior citizen who is maybe 75, 80, not trusting the vaccine because of what they have experienced and what they learned about when, when they were a kid growing up. Right. History. But when I see someone my age or younger not trusting it, it makes me wonder, well, why is it, why don't you trust that? And but then you have to stop and think these, this narrative never stops in our community. Right. Got passed down the generations. So I have, I have two things to say to that. The first one is I just saw, it was yesterday and I'm gonna send it to you. I just saw um, a really interesting chart about um, that was a, a poll. Um, and the questions were, um, uh, if you could get a vaccine, would you? And um, have you already been vaccinated? Right. And the greatest hesitancy 
came from white men. And the greatest willingness to get a vaccine came from um, black men and women. So we are actually promoting a narrative about hesitancy mm-hmm. that may be um, masking the real problem, which is one of access, right? So just right. think about what we all saw where wealthy white couples were descending upon poor neighborhoods that had vaccines and were, in, and were pushing themselves to the front of the line. Right. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing, um, I, I really heard what you said because I've been, there are a lot of um, historians of medicine who have been working on the history of race and disease much longer than I have. And they've been really loud about, um, um, I, I, it would be too strong for me to say enough with Tuskegee because mm. Tuskegee is a very powerful um, uh, moment that we all have to teach about. Right. But the thing is that um, that discrimination is happening every day, right? So that members of the black community, uh, and I mean, I'm speaking as a white person, but that what I'm hearing is that members of the black community don't need to look back to Tuskegee to feel the way in which racism is still part of medical care. Exactly. They're, they're experiencing it every day. Exactly. So, so both of those, like there's, there's reason to not trust and they want the vaccine. It's just make it, you know, Nashville has started doing these pop-up clinics in mm-hmm. like, you know, North Nashville, which is a predominantly black community. If you, if you bring it to people who maybe they can't take time off from work or they don't have reliable transportation, you know, you know, all the reasons, right. Then, then you start having different narratives. So you know, we just, I mean, we are at a moment where we're all hyper aware of the stories that, we, that we're telling because there's so much, there are so many lies that are being spun. Right, yeah. And when I, um, I mean, I'm living here in Florida now. I'm, I've only been here a couple of years. And when I hear about the accusations of uh, the governor of Florida, what he did to basically put the access to the vaccines in public shop uh, grocery stores located in these more affluent and more uh, populated by his supporters. Right. Right. And then if you couple that with, with a narrative about hesitancy in the black community, right. Then, you know, then, then who's to blame. Then then you're blaming again communities that have been excluded and marginalized and prevented from having the same access to care that privileged white communities have. And it's it's encouraging to hear because I think there was, I didn't catch his name, but there was one professional athlete who um, took it upon himself and I guess in Florida, he, he took it upon himself to actually provide uh, vaccines to those low income communities. Um, and in a way, 
it's good that there are people who are able to do that, but it's sad at the same time that it has to resort to right. um, celebrities or pro athletes who have uh, the means to make that happen right. to, to get them to, to, to make, to do what's right in a sense. Um, so we can, um, you know, just make things even. I, I'm not one to get, you know, discouraged a lot um, because I like to be educated and I let my, I try to let my knowledge be my motivation because that's why I want to learn as much as I can how these health disparities affect marginalized communities, whether it be Native American, Asian American, trans, the gay community, the whole gamut. Mm -hmm. um, because again, this book is taking the, the shroud off of a lot of hidden information mm -hmm. that really speaks to what we've been needing to hear. And I think far as I'm concerned, every person who considers themselves an advocate needs this book as a, as a manual in a sense. Thank you. <laughs> they needed it. I, I mean, I'm serious. I, if things were different to where we could travel to go to our conferences, like we used to, I would take a stack of these books to the next conference I go to. And I would pack because as a matter of fact, there's something I want to talk to you about now that just crossed my mind that um, it's called Healthy Voices. And basically we, um, it's comprised of a conference of just several different chronic illnesses, advocates meeting together to learn about advocacy, what we can do and uh, get encouraged and motivate us to, you know, keep moving forward with our advocacy. And um, yeah, I would take that to that conference if we could just get on a plane and do it because it make this a manual because that's one of the things that we started talking about at that conference recently um, because they started a diversity and inclusion task force, which I'm on. And the one thing that I speak heavily about is I want this conference, if they're the first to work harder at you know, creating this task force, be the example for other conferences to be that example. And that's my narrative, my personal narrative in there. We're gonna be on the right side of history on this. Yeah. Because a lot of people credit me for being one of the early folks to talk about lack of diversity in the diabetes online community. And at the time I was saying it, not a lot was done. A lot of people were listening, but they didn't know where to start. And so tragically due to people being murdered, now we've, you know, we've started that push again yeah, yeah um and so that's that's what i wanted to do and 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 i and i thank you so much for this book because in my experience of being living with diabetes for 30 years or so i've never seen a book like this i've never come across any no one's ever provided me with a book like this to enlighten me to help me understand how the sad part is it's not just to the, the condition itself. Right. It's the machine that has the machine of classism, the machine of racism, um, disenfranchisement, and all of that, and just added that and labeled, you know, connected it to a chronic illness. Yeah. So um, I would, I, I, I would love 
to have more conversations with diabetes advocates. Um, meeting um, Felissa DeRose was um, just chance because I participated in the um, action, the seminar, the, the speak out, I can't remember now what it was called that, that Boston Diabetes Advocacy Group put on. Okay. Um, and, um, and I spoke and Felissa spoke and that's where we met. And that's when she invited me to do this um, book group where I met you. Right. Um, and it, it was a small turnout, as you know, but it was the most meaningful exchange for me of, um, the, of, of, of the talks that I've given because, you know, I, I hoped that this book would speak to people with diabetes, but, um, I had no idea if it would. Right. And one of the women who attended that was talking about how she had sensed that something wasn't right in the care that she was receiving or maybe even more accurately not receiving. But that, you know, one of the ways in which systems work is they make you think that you're the problem. And when she said that reading this history was like a constant affirmation that she, that she wasn't the problem, it wasn't in her head, right. but that this stuff was happening. Right. Um, I, I'm getting goosebumps now just even saying that to you. And um, so, but I have not had access to, um, because, I, because I'm not a diabetes advocate. Right, right. Um, most of the talks that I've been giving, been giving have actually been to medical schools um, and to you know, either endocrinology departments or um, even like, um, internal medicine. So people who are both doing research on diabetes, but who are also clinicians. And they are as hungry for this book as, or at least for my talks. I don't know whether they're running out and buying the book. Right. Um, but I think that this is a moment. I just hope it doesn't pass. I think this is a moment where there is the potential for some self-reflection. Um, it's just that as an historian, I mean, there were these moments, you know, there was the 1920s and then there was, you know, the civil rights movement and then there was the black power movement. Like there were, you know, with, with um, the Black Panthers um, creating health clinics. And right. so there were all these moments and then, you know, and then there was Reaganism. So it's like, you know, we're always on the seesaw. We're, you know, it's, it's, there, there's momentum and then it gets squashed. And so I just think this is a moment where we have to fight really hard for the awareness that, you know, the combination of all the murders, as you've mentioned, right. the Black Lives Matter movement and, um, and all the talk around the inequities around, around COVID. 
this is a moment, but we have to make sure that, you know, people don't in their desire to get back to normal, they don't start acting like things can go back because right. they can't. There's, yeah. I mean, they can't go back. And I share that. I share that fear as well, because just like you said, once we, everyone is so eager to go back to normal that oh. I fear that people are going to, that once that happens, then we become complacent again. Right. And then things just, it just fades away. Right. And that's why I, I just encourage any advocate that I come across, don't let this just sit there. Right. We've got, it's not like it was in the 60s. We didn't have social media then. Now mm -hmm. we have the whole world in our pockets. We can actually keep a movement going. Right. Because for the most part, that's how most of the movements that we have now began. They began through social media right. and just by just online engagement. And that's what I, um, that's what I hope to do is to keep pushing that narrative. Um, because I, I, I know I keep harping on the book, but the book has just, just motivated me so much because I, here is the information. Yeah. This is the justification of everything that we've been talking about all these years that no one seems to know how to address, whether they just willingly don't, don't literally don't know what to do to the point where they just don't care and aren't willing to do anything. Right. Here is everything that we've been talking about all this time, not just with diabetes, right. being marginalized as it pertains to healthcare in this country. Right. There is just the, the, the information is right there. Yeah. So what I would love to do is I'm going to send you um, the connection to a list serve. It's called the spirit of 1848 mm -hmm. and um, 1848 um, was a year of um, multiple revolutions, political revolutions in Europe. And um, and in several countries, I know Germany best, um, healthcare was part of the political revolution. So those who were fighting to um, increase democracy were emphasizing how critically important good health was to a democracy. Right. And, um, and so this listserv consists of um, people who are active, like they're, they're, they're left, radical left, left, lefty, leftist, uh, public health advocates. And um, if, you, if you sign on, you will be inspired by how many people and are working on trying to eradicate racism from the healthcare community. I just warn you, you will get about 15 emails a day. So you, you know, you, you may get inspired quickly and then get off. Right. Um, but, um, but that's how I stay up on, um, on some of the really innovative ideas that people are pushing for now, in, including um, bringing the whole idea of, um, of reparations into healthcare. Um, hmm. And um, 
So like what, what would it mean to have an anti-racist curriculum in medical schools so that we're training or not just medical schools, right? And, and nursing schools and public health schools so that we're training the next generation on how to be anti-racist. Right. Uh, so there's, there is a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, and, but, you know, like you, I, I, I mean, and I've been around long enough. I've got a good 10 years on you. You know, it's, um, it, backlash is just part of our history. And, yeah. and I think if we don't want that to happen now, then um, we have to keep fighting and, 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 and we're tired. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's, that's um, it's like that uh, saying I used to uh, say a lot, let your uh, desperation be your motivation. You know, right. and right now it's just need to let your frustration be your motivation because yeah. Yeah. you can't, and in my opinion, you can't be frustrated and this just be frustrated. No, you can't, you not anymore. You need to be frustrated and be diligent and right. do your due diligence. Right. And this is what, um, this is what I, want, I want to see happen. Um, what's next? What do, you, what do you see? What's the next move? Uh, I guess, what's, what do you got planned next as far as uh, the book or your next uh, book? Or, and that was 14 years. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm, um, I'm doing a few articles that will still bring in the diabetes stuff. I'm actually working with a friend on um, something around the politics of, we're calling it the politics of respectability, but it's a piece that looks at um, the stories we tell about who is deserving of care and who is not deserving of care. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the other interests that I have that, um, that I'm moving into now is a uh, history of alcoholism and addiction. Oh, and, um, and I'm, so I'm, I'm, you know, part of the story that I tell here is in, in this diabetes book is about how, um, juvenile diabetics and then people who have type one. Um, have a, a, there's a different narrative told about them than people who have type two. So, you know, and we saw this with, with AIDS, right? So they're, they're, you know, they're the innocent people. Mm -hmm. So with AIDS, it was anyone who got it through a blood transfusion. Right. Um, and then there are the guilty people, right? So anyone who got it through unprotected sex or through um, dirty needles. Right. And, um, and with diabetes, people who have type one, it's no fault of their own, it's autoimmune, um, they're, they're innocent. And then people with type two, it's, it's their choice. They, they, they could choose to live differently, right? It's all their behavior. And um, right now I've been um, really fascinated and troubled by the way in which um, treatment centers as, it be, as they became a big business in um, the decades after World War II were intentionally separating the skid row alcoholic from the, um, the businessman who has a life that's salvageable 
and is deserving of care so that he can turn his life around. Right. Um, and, um, but the thing with addiction, and I hadn't really thought of this before you were talking about the, the, the caregiver um, and how that story isn't told with diabetes, that um, what interests me, my, my take on the history of addiction and alcoholism is looking at the families. Um, so, um, and I wanna take it back into the 19th century and just, you know, how did families deal with having someone in their midst who was struggling with alcoholism and addiction? Yeah, that's actually something that I um, experienced as well. I mean, I've, I've had um, more than a few family members who suffered with um, alcohol addiction. And as a kid, you get to see, well, as, as I, would, I would get to see my father's reaction to his uncle's condition. And that was long before I understood what addiction is. Right. Um, as a kid, I just see my father, you know, kind of dropping his head and just not really saying anything. Right. Um, because obviously he couldn't explain it to us. Right. But as I got older and understood what addiction is and what it, what it can possibly stem from, it made me want to understand my uncles a little better because it's like what happened to them that made them seek that substance as a something to ease the pain. What, what, is, what pain was it? Was it, was, it, was it an act or was it a memory or this something? Because I know both of them had served uh, during Korea or World War II. Was mm -hmm. it something that they experienced then or was it, just, was it just being a Black man in America? Right. Um, because obviously they were, they were born with the, the gene that, that, that they were with that addiction. But what is it that kept them from seeking help from talking about it right. you know a lot of folks where i grew up they always they relied on church to to ease the pain on sunday but then monday through saturday you do the best you can you know right. that right. type of thing and um so it was in my experience addiction is um as far as a family it's, it's something that um that was highly visible uh, that was well known within the family. And then on top of that, just in the community that I grew up in, you, as a kid, you laugh at the, the, the older gentleman in your neighborhood who's walking down the street, drunk, right. maybe falling out in your yard, you laugh at it. But as you get older and wiser, you wonder what led him to that. Right. Right. And then, you know, as family members, you're, there are no easy solutions. Maybe that's what I'm drawn to, right? right? There are no easy solutions because, I mean, people react differently when they're drunk. Um, and so, you know, it's everything from people who become violent to people who are no longer capable of working to people who are stealing to, right? And it's not just alcoholism, we're also talking about addiction. So there are no easy solutions and I'm interested in understanding, right? Cause I'm an historian. Mm -hmm. um, so, so when there were no easy solutions in the 19th century, like 
what did people do? Right. And um, and so you know this is gonna right you know you you, you I'm laughing with you another fourteen years all right but because I mean one of the things that I'm really sorry about with um, the book that I wrote I wish that I had found more stories right from either people who were who had diabetes themselves or from um, family members. And when I found those letters of Edison and, and his wife, it was, you know, that's what I wished I could have had throughout this book, but I just couldn't find them. Right. And, um, and that's what I'm hoping for. I, I think I'm going to have an easier job finding stories. Um, I mean, cause I've already turned up quite a, quite a few. Mm. So I'm just, I, you know, I'm interested in how did families deal with these problems and and what kind of support did they have whether it was you know temperance um organizations or their churches and um other religious institutions or the government or uh, you know and how did that change over time so so that's what i'm i'm there while i am while i'm continuing to um uh, uh, promote my book. Oh, yeah. Well, you, it, I'll be working full time promoting the book. <laughs> I'm, I'm on board and I'm on the clock. Believe, believe me when I say that, because to me personally, this book has been a godsend because it is, um, it is strengthened my purpose. I came into advocacy with the purpose of, you know, basically diabetes gave me a purpose. That's yeah. the, I guess, the upside to this condition that I was that I have is in spite of, you know, losing vision in my right eye because of it, um, it gave me purpose to do something uh, positive with it, to help others that may be going through the same thing that I went through, uh, that live through the silence, that are living in silence and not letting their, anyone know of their condition or they may not even know they have it. Um, I wanna, my whole thing is just, <laughs> To make this easier to talk about so people can get the help that they need. And so, um, yeah, so thank you so much for this book, uh, speaking as a person living with a condition and living as a person of color living with this condition. Thank you for this book um, because it is given a voice to those who, um, who are no longer here that went through all of that. Um, I, would, I would hope that all those folks who lived through that um, are thankful um, because you, you have given the world a blessing uh, through this book by providing us with this knowledge to help us uh, to do better and to, um, to be better. Thank you so much for um, this podcast. I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm honored and I'm, and I'm deeply, deeply moved that my book has had this kind of impact on you. It's, um, and I will not be the last one, believe me. I will see to that. Okay. I will not be the last one to, 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 to be moved. Uh, I, I believe that. Dr. Tuckman, thank you so much for joining me here on the Solar Diabetes Podcast. I really appreciate it. Godspeed and thank you for all your work. Thank you.
All right, folks, it is time for me to get out of here. Once again, thank you for joining me here on the Soul of Diabetes podcast. Be sure to subscribe and definitely share this podcast with anyone you think that may benefit from these conversations. So with that said, again, thank you. Be healthy, be safe, and definitely always be positive.